Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much that we can gather in freedom and learn more about your word. And we thank you, Lord, for your glorious truths that you do have a place for us in heaven. We thank you, Father, that your son is worthy to take this scroll because of who he is and what he's done. We thank you, Lord, that after he pours out his wrath, that he will bring a kingdom that will be without end, where there'll be no more pain and suffering, no more mourning for the people of God. And we thank you for these great truths. We ask, Lord, that they would edify us and build us up so that we would persevere unto that last day. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, as you can see, we're in verses 6 through 10 of Revelation chapter 5. We're going to be working our way through chapter 5. Now, remember next time, that is next week, Bob is going to be teaching back in the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 4. I'm excited about that. And then when we get back to Revelation... We'll be finishing chapter 5, and I'm going to give you an introduction into the various views of the tribulation, because when we get into chapter 6, I think it's a very apropos discussion. So if you would, bring any questions, comments, ideas that you have about your tribulation understanding, and we'll start talking about those things next time. What I'm going to show you is the key thing to understand when it comes to tribulation discussions in theology is we have to simply answer the question correctly, when does the wrath of God come? Because we've been promised as Christians to be exempt from the wrath of God, all we have to determine is, well, when does the wrath of God begin? And if we can answer that question, then we have our answer to the timing of the tribulation and the rapture, etc. So that'll be next time. Let's uh, get into Revelation 5, 6 through 10. Now, remember last week we had focused on how Jesus was worthy to open the seven-sealed scroll and recall the reason why he was worthy. Number one, it was because of who he is. Who is Jesus? Well, he's the Messiah. We saw that he was the lion from the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49.10. And he was also the root of David, the fulfillment of Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 10. So his messianic credentials uniquely made him worthy of opening the seals. But we also saw that he was worthy of opening the seals because of what he did for us. Remember, he was the overcomer. Jesus says in John 16, take heed, I've overcome the world. And so that's why we saw in 1 John 5, 5, the question answered, who is it that overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So for you to be an overcomer, It's not by your works, but it's by your faith in Christ who's overcome. And so that's why he was worthy to break the seals. Now, this week we're going to see a lot of drama unfold. And the drama is this Jesus who's always depicted as sitting at the right hand of God is now going to be depicted and the throne room is standing. And he is going to come forth and he is going to take the seal, the sealed scroll, and with the implication that he's going to be opening it. And so this is breathtaking, and I'll try to show you why we know it's breathtaking. Even some of the grammar seems to support that. So Jesus here, in the section we're covering, is standing, and he receives the scroll, just as predicted, all the way back in Daniel chapter 7. So I want you to think about Daniel chapter 7. Remember, the Father, the Ancient of Days, gives the kingdom to the Son of Man, That was written around 550 B.C. And when John writes Revelation in 95 A.D., I want you to think over 600 years had passed before or between God's revelation 
And all of a sudden it's being revealed that this kingdom will indeed come that was prophesied in Daniel. So it's very, very exciting indeed. So that's where we're going to go. And I want to begin by looking at the Lamb taking the scroll here. And we're going to just focus a little bit on the verbs in this passage. Revelation 5, verses 6 through 7. Now remember, John has a vision, doesn't he? That's where he's transported and he sees these things. He says, And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing, as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now notice the first thing that John points out is that he saw a lamb. And remember, this lamb idea is extremely important. Why? Because throughout Old Testament revelation, it was a lamb that was going to take the place of sinful humanity. In other words, you have the Passover lamb in Exodus chapter 12. What did the Israelites have to do with the Passover lamb? They had to, first of all, select it on the 10th day of Nisan. Okay, now, let's just fast forward to the New Testament. What day does Jesus come into Jerusalem? The 10th day of Nisan on Lamb Selection Day. When were the Israelites to slay the lamb? On the 14th. And so they were to take the blood of the lamb and apply it to the doorposts of their home so that when the destroying angel saw the blood, he would pass them over. Well, our Passover lamb, Jesus, was also slain on the same day, on the 14th day, so that by faith in him, God will see the blood of the lamb on us, and he will also pass us over from his wrath. That's the imagery that we see. And so that's why Jesus is called the lamb of God. But remember, this lamb imagery begins all the way back in Genesis 22. Recall, how is Abraham saved? By faith. Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, what did Abraham believe? Well, he believed the seed promise. Very first promise in the Bible, Genesis 3, 15, was that the seed of the woman would one day come and crush the serpent. Now, the rest of the Old Testament is an unveiling of who that seed would be. We found out he's going to come from Abraham, from Isaac, and from Jacob. But we begin with Abraham. And so in Genesis 15, Abraham believes that the Messiah, the seed, would come from his lineage, so much so that God said his seed, Zerah, would be as numerous as the stars. Okay, so the seed is not just one, the Messiah, but the work is for the many who would believe in him. They're attached to the seed promise. So Abraham believes that. And it's credited to him as righteousness in Genesis 15, 6. So here's the rub. Years go by. Sarah and Abraham have no children, and they're old. Okay? I think about my wife and I. We felt old when we had a kid, and we weren't near their age. Okay? So what do they do? They think, well, we better help God out. And so they bring in Hagar. But God says, no, the son of promise is going to come from Abraham and you, Sarah. And they laughed at him. Remember, they laughed at God. Well, then what happens, of course, is they have a son, the son of promise, whose name is Isaac. And what does Isaac's name mean? It means laughter, doesn't it? Because they had laughed at God. So now you have the son of promise from whom the Messiah and all the promises are going to come. And in Genesis 22, God says to Abraham, 
you have to sacrifice him. I want you to think about how shocking that would have been. You have to sacrifice the son of promise. But what happens, of course, in Genesis 22 is God provides what? A substitute. And so this idea of substitution, remember, they're going up the mountain at Mount Moriah. And what is the question that Isaac asks? He says, Dad, here's the firewood. Here's all the materials for the offering, but where's the lamb? And the answer of Abraham was, don't worry, son, Yahweh will provide. And so 1,800 years later, on that very spot, Mount Moriah, Yahweh does provide the Passover lamb, Jesus. So all of that rich imagery is tied into this lamb idea. That's why John the Baptist says, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in John 1.29. So when we see a lamb, that's Jesus. He is the substitutionary sacrifice for all time. That's the rich imagery there. Now, I also want to focus here on this first verb. Notice the verb here, standing. Isn't it interesting that in Psalm 110.1, we have Jesus who is depicted as sitting at the right hand of the Father. Okay, so, for example, in Psalm 110.1, it says, Yahweh said to my Abinai. So my Lord said to my Lord. Now, who's writing that? Does anyone recall? David's writing that, isn't he? So who is the Lord of David? When he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, who is the Lord of David? Well, only God is. So when he says, the Lord said to my Lord, the only Lord of David is God. So in Psalm 110, we're seeing Trinitarian communication. And so it's the Father telling the Son, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So this is fulfilled at the ascension of Christ. Christ is depicted as being seated at the right hand of God. Now, what's very interesting is if you go into the book of Acts, do you remember when Stephen preaches that sermon and he ends up being stoned? And as he looks into heaven, and this is around Acts 7.50, what does he see? Does he see Jesus seated, or seated, I should say, at the right hand of God? He sees him standing. And that's very dramatic because normally the sun is depicted as being seated. So here we see the same drama. The son who is seated at the right hand of the father is now depicted here as standing. It's that moment where all of a sudden, can you imagine for thousands of years, the son has been seated at the right hand of the father and he gets up. And there's a gasp in the throne room. Wow, he's getting up. The Son of Man is going to get up and he's going to take the scroll. And with that then comes the kingdom of God. Now, standing here, the verb itself is in the perfect tense. In fact, also, we have the perfect tense with slain. So the lamb that's depicted is standing, which is obviously a reference to his resurrection as well. Remember, he was dead, but for he forevermore now is one who stands. Okay? The same thing with slain. Now, the perfect tense, I mentioned that, and it just kind of goes over our heads. Okay, perfect tense. So what? It's a big deal. The perfect tense is the least used tense in the Greek New Testament. It's the one that should make us kind of sit up and take notice. The perfect tense has to do with an action that's completed in the past from the time that the speaker is speaking, and it's completed. And its effects, then, are always with us. 
Does that make sense? So Jesus was slain on the cross. That was perfectly completed in the past, and its lasting effects are always with us. That's the emphasis of the perfect tense verbs. The same thing with standing and slain, the resurrection and the crucifixion. In fact, Robert Mount says this. He's a scholar that teaches new uh, beginning Greek. If anyone learns Greek, you'll get his book probably, Robert Mounts. He says, quote, The use of the Greek perfects, having taken his stand and having been slain, emphasizes the lasting benefits of his sacrificial death and resurrection. So they happen in the past, but the emphasis of the perfect tense is that they're always with us, those effects. Now, we see the same tense here when it says that he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now, here's the one thing I want you all to think about. Notice the standing and the slain. We know that is the resurrection and the crucifixion. We know that that's in our past, right? But what about this idea that he took the book and now is going to break open the seals and establish his kingdom? Is that in our past? No. That's still in the future, isn't it? But yet it's in the perfect tense. The first two, by the way, standing and slain are participles. This is a verb. Okay, but nonetheless, they're all in the perfect tense. And took here then, the question is, how do we understand that? When did Jesus ever take the scroll and break them open in the past? Well, of course, he has not done that. So what I want to do is help you understand tenses in the book of Revelation. And perhaps I can help us understand tenses better in how they're used in the Bible. You and I as English speakers, when we speak about events, we use tense. We can say, I went to the store, I'm going to the store, or I will go to the store. But the focus for us as English speakers is we're focusing on when the action occurred. In Greek, they can also focus on that, but the emphasis is on whether the action is ongoing or whether it is seen as completed or as a whole. Does that make sense? So Greek is a little different. It's aspectual. So there's two parts to the tense in the Greek language. Let me point up here. There's time. When did the event occur? And there's aspect. So you and I, as English speakers, we focus on time. I went to the store. That's past. I'm going to the store, present. Or I will go to the store, future. They don't focus on that. That's part of it. They give you that information, but their focus is on whether it's an ongoing action or not. Does that make sense? Now, I'm going to show you the tense. I'm going to put them in order. This is the tense that's most often used in biblical Greek is the present tense. Now, the present tense, notice it does have to do with time that is current in the indicative. The indicative mood, by the way, is the only mood in Greek where time is relevant. In the other moods, like the subjunctive mood and the optative mood, the imperative mood, time is really irrelevant. But in the indicative mood, I'm giving you a general gloss, It usually the present tense has to do with things that are currently happening at the time of the speaker. But again, that's not the emphasis. The emphasis is on the internal action or what is in process. So here's the analogy I would come up with. Think about you're watching a parade and you're sitting there and the parade is going by and you're seeing as a bystander the internal workings of the parade. It's in process. You see one float come by, and you're seeing people wave. You're seeing the inner workings of it. That's ongoing action. It's in process. 
But now let's look at the aorist, and I'll show you how it's different. The aorist is the next most often used tense in the Greek language. Again, in the indicative mood, it's typically referring to things that happened in the past. But notice the aspect is external. That is, it's viewed as a whole. So instead of being the bystander watching the parade by the side of the road and seeing the whole thing unfold as in process, now think of it as you're in a, a blimp. And you look down and you see the parade as a whole. Does that make sense? More of the external view. All right? That's really more of the focus of the aorist, although some think it's even undefined, that it doesn't even give you that much. There's a debate about it. All right, now, let me show you the future, or the imperfect, rather. That's the next most often used. The emphasis is on the past. But notice the aspect is in process. So this is what you would say if you said, you know, I was studying for that test. So if you said, I was studying, it's different than say, yeah, I studied for it. The idea is if you say, I studied for it, you studied and you completed that. You were ready for it. But if you said, I was studying, it was in process. There's no indication that you ever were prepared for the test. Does that make sense? That's what the imperfect is. So the biblical author will often use that to show you something that happened in the past but was ongoing. The action isn't depicted as completed. Okay, remember um, a few weeks ago we were doing a sermon. Peter denied being with Christ. It was in the imperfect. So the biblical author is using that to show he was doing that over and over. He kept denying it. It wasn't just that he denied it and was done. He kept denying it. That's the significance of the imperfect tense. Okay, now the future is very simple. It just focuses on the future and time, and it's external as a whole. One day Christ will come. We're not talking about the process. We're just talking about it as a whole, the parousia. Okay, now here's the one that's least used, and that's the one that we're focusing on here. It's the perfect tense, and this is the one that should make us perk up. It's dramatic because notice the time for the perfect is in the past, but the aspect is a combination of internal and external. In other words, it's seen as external in that the act is complete, but it has ongoing relevance. And so there's a process. It's both. So the act of Christ being crucified was complete. It was seen as a whole. But there's also this process of ongoing relevance to our day. So now let's go back to our parade analogy. This type of action would be the people who are cleaning up afterwards. And they're cleaning up in the parade the confetti and all the litter. So they see the parade is completed, but there's lasting consequences to it. They have to clean it up. Okay? That's the perfect tense. Yes, it's complete. The parade is over. It's all done. But there's lasting consequences for that person who's cleaning it up. That's what's being stated in this scene. Christ is slain. He was slain completely in the past, but its effect is always with us. He never has to be slain again because he was crucified, what? Once and for all. He was raised from the dead. It was perfectly completed, and that effect is always with us. He's always the raised one. But that helps us understand that when it says that he took the scroll, it's also a once and for all idea. But it's from the time of the speaker, and that's what creates confusion, I think. Eric? Yeah. <laughs> um, with the perfect tense, I think of um, when we are baptized. Would that be exactly. perfect tense? We're baptized, but the 
effect is ongoing. Exactly right. Okay. We were only baptized once, right? And it was completed, and its effect is always with us. We always remember through that act that by faith we have been united to Christ. Okay. Yep. Thanks. Perfect. Exactly. So the perfect tense has this once and for all idea associated with it. Now, here's the quandary, though, in our passage. We saw slain. We know that that happened in our past. We saw Jesus is standing. That is, he was raised. That's in our past. But the idea of Jesus taking the book, that's still in our future. And so why would the past tense, the perfect tense, be used? Well, here's what we have to understand is that it's always with respect to the time of the speaker. So think about this timeline. You and I are living in the present. It's now. It's 2015. We have the past and the future. Well, John is writing, his vision is in the future, isn't it? He's transported in the future. So let's take all three. Let's take slain. Jesus being slain, is that in John's past? Yes. Now, you and I are living here. Is it in our past? Yes, Jesus was crucified in the past. What about his resurrection? Well, the same thing. It happens back here. But notice when it says that Jesus took the scroll, that is future to you and I. But John's vision is in the future, and so he can speak to it as if it's in the past. Does that make sense? So that's how tense is affected by the, the future aspect of John's vision. So remember, the tense is always related to the time of the speaker speaking. And in this case in Revelation, what throws people off is that John is speaking in the future. This is what creates so much problems in interpreting the book of Revelation. How do we know that John is speaking about the future? Well, turn your books to Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. Revelation 1:19. that's, again, the programmatic verse. It's the outline of the book of Revelation. Okay, so remember Bob has talked about Acts 1-8 as the programmatic verse for the book of Acts. It's the outline. Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That's Acts 1-8. Guess how Acts is structured? You see the works of the apostles and the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. It follows that programmatic verse. The same thing happens in Revelation 1.19. John says, therefore, he says this is a command by, given to him by Christ, therefore write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. Does everybody see that in Revelation 1.19? So in Revelation chapter 1 all the way to Revelation chapter 3, the focus is on the things that were and the things that are. But all of a sudden, when you get into the throne room in chapter 4, all the way to the end of the book, the focus is on the things that are after these things. And that's the focus on the future. That's the time of John's vision. So these are all events that are still future to our day. Now turn your Bibles ahead, Revelation 4.1. I'll prove that to you. I want you to understand this structure because you're going to have people say, well, you know, all of these events in Revelation 4 through 22, they happen during church history. And so then they're in our past. And so that's why John is using the perfect tense here. Is that preterist? Well, preterism would see everything fulfilled primarily in 70 AD. The historist approach would see things. The reformers were very much historist, a lot of them. The Catholic Church actually was the one who 
sort of invented preterism as a response to the reformers who kept saying that the Pope is Antichrist. Okay? But what I want you to see is that it's nonsense to believe in this historical view, even in light of the perfect tense. So notice in Revelation 4.1, John says, After these things I looked. Now when he says after these things, what things? Well, the things that were and the things that are. Revelation 1-3. through 3. He says, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. Now remember that must is day. What does that mean? It's the divine necessity. So the whole, the whole structure of Revelation from chapter 4 all the way to chapter 22 is future-oriented. Okay, so that's why John can speak of things that, yes, they're in the past for us, but he also can speak of things as being in the past for him, although they're still in our future because we're living in the present. That's what I'm trying to show you. Okay, does everyone see that? All right, now let's move on. The Lamb takes the scroll. Again, I want to just show you a few items here. Notice here the Lamb is standing. We said that was significant. Again, the perfect tense is where he was standing once and for all and forevermore. He was slain and he took the book. But I also want to focus on the imagery of the lamb. He was seen as one having seven horns and seven eyes. Now, what's that all about? Well, seven is typically a number in the Bible that has to do with perfection or completion. In fact, who... Anyone here to listen to Adam do an excellent message on the book of Genesis? He talked a little bit about the number seven. God creates all things in six days, and then on the seventh day he rests. Why? Because everything's complete. Everything's reached its fulfillment, as it were. So seven has to do with this idea of completion. Now, in the book of Revelation, chapter 13, you'll see the Antichrist has given a number, and the number is six Six, six. Notice the number is short of seven, is it not? So God has a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's complete, right? Seven, 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 as it were. But Satan, he has a false trinity that he's building. Satan is the false father. The beast is the false Christ. And the false prophet is the false Holy Spirit. And so the number that represents them is six, it's short of perfection. So seven has to do with this idea of completeness. Now, horns throughout the Bible has to do with kingly dignity. It symbolizes power. And so if we put it together, the lamb is then being depicted as having complete omnipotence. Not just kingly power, but complete kingly power. Okay, all by using this imagery of having seven horns. Now, the seven eyes, that borrows from Zechariah 4.10, where the Holy Spirit was poured out. And the Holy Spirit knows all things. And so the idea of having seven eyes would be the idea of having omniscience. So notice the Lamb has complete omnipotence and he has complete omniscience. But he doesn't just have that himself, he uses an agent. And that's why notice what's in blue, it says, which are the seven spirits of God. That's a reference to the Holy Spirit. Okay, again, the reference I would give you in the Old Testament, you can jot down, is Zechariah 4.10. Okay, so it's the completeness of the Spirit. And notice the Spirit is sent 
out into all the earth. All right? So remember, Jesus, when he ascends on high, he ends up sending at Pentecost the Holy Spirit. So when we look at the Trinity, we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're all equal. They all have the same attributes in essence. But we believe that the scriptures teach something called economic subordination. And what that simply means is that they have different roles. So, for example, the Father is often depicted as the one with the plan. He's the one who predestines. Jesus carries out that plan, and the Holy Spirit is the one who enables us to become partakers of the plan. Okay, so, for instance, turn your Bibles to John 15, 26. I want you to see that the Holy Spirit is one who is sent out by both the Father and the Son. So he proceeds from both. John 15, 26, this is a passage that, remember Bob was giving some months back? He was talking about what a work of the Spirit is. And a true work of the Spirit is the confession of Christ. Well, this is one of the passages we had looked at. John 15, 26, Jesus says, When the Helper, there's the Spirit, the Parakletos, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. So notice in that passage that the Holy Spirit proceeds from both the Son and the Father. And so in that sense, then, he is sent out into all the world. So the Holy Spirit, then, is Christ's agent by which he governs and rules over the world. He does it himself, but he also uses the Holy Spirit. In fact, listen to what Robert Thomas says, the great scholar in the book of Revelation. He says, quote, The Holy Spirit is Christ's agent for assimilating what is going on throughout the whole world, and this relationship is represented symbolically in the imposing picture of the Lamb in the throne room. Okay, so the Holy Spirit was sent out into the world, and He is the one who is going to regenerate people so that they can believe in Christ. He is going to bring to remembrance all things that Christ has spoken. He's going to enable us to understand the things of the gospel. He's going to regenerate. And that's why Jesus says, greater works will you do than I've done. The greater works are bringing people to salvation, and that's the Holy Spirit's role. Now, notice in verse 7, then he he continues, he says, And he came, so this is momentous, the Son of Man is standing, and he's now coming forth to take the scroll. It says, He took the book out of the right hand, of him who sat on the throne. Now, what passage comes to our minds when we think of the Son of Man taking the authority of the kingdom from the Father? Well, Daniel chapter 7. That's the passage that should come to our minds. Let me just show you where this comes from. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. Now, remember in the vision, this is Belshazzar. This is actually a pagan king who's having this vision But Daniel, the prophet, is the one who can interpret it because he's been given the understanding by God. And so I'm reading to you what Belshazzar is revealing, but Daniel's the one who understands it. Daniel 7, 13 through 14, Belshazzar, remember he was a son of Nebuchadnezzar. He says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. So let's just stop there. Notice the phrase that I have in the red, son of man. That's Jesus' favorite self-designation in all of the Gospels. 
So he refers to himself more often as the Son of Man than anything other. Why? Because he's deliberately linking himself with that passage. He is the Messiah who has all rule and authority. All right? Now notice it goes on to say, And to him was given dominion, glory, and the kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. So let's stop there. That's what's occurring now in the throne room of Revelation. This pie-in-the-sky idea that there was going to be a coming kingdom, it's now becoming a reality, and John sees it. And that's why it's so significant that the Son of Man, who's always depicted as seated at the right hand of the Father, again in the throne room, he's standing, and he comes forth. And it's that, just like if you were in a courtroom, and I don't know if there's anybody that you've ever wanted to see real bad. When I was a kid, I always wanted to see Earl Campbell. I love football. And I thought, oh, it'd be so neat to meet Earl Campbell. I wasn't a believer when I was a kid. So if Earl Campbell came into a room when I was an eight-year-old, oh, Earl Campbell, the best running back to ever play the game. But can you imagine how much greater it is when Christ stands, the Lord of glory? And that's the scene that we have in the throne room. There's none like him. The seated one at the right hand of the Father is now standing, and he's fulfilling this great promise. Also, I want you to see this. uh, I didn't highlight it. I probably should have. But it says that to him was given dominion and glory kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. The phrase peoples, nations, and men of every language, I'm going to show you that that's used in Revelation 5 in the very next slide. So there's deliberate connections from the Revelation text back to Daniel 7. Okay, so in other words, we're not just reading into it. It's really there. All right. Now the final thing I want you to notice, notice it goes on to say, His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So think about who is seeing this vision. It was the king of all, all of the world. Nebuchadnezzar and his son reigned over the whole world. There was not a higher and mightier king. And yet he is given a vision of the Messiah's kingdom. And even this pagan king, as brutal as he was, had to admit that, yeah, the Messiah, when he comes, His kingdom is without end. Isn't that shocking? God gave a pagan king that revelation. Of course, he enables Daniel to understand it. Now, turn your Bibles, too. I want you to see that this idea of Christ reigning isn't just seen there, but it's also seen in Psalm 110. Psalm 110, verses 1 through 4. Let's look at that real quick. Psalm 110, verses 1 through 4. Again, this is the most prolifically quoted New Old Testament passage in the New Testament. So this passage is quoted more often by the New Testament writers than any other. Psalm 110, verses 1 through 4. Let's start with verse 1. Notice it says, The Lord, all caps, that's Yahweh. So it says, Yahweh says to my Adonai, that's my Lord, small caps, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So let's stop there. So in the Hebrew, it's literally... There is an utterance, Naum. And then it's Yahweh to my Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And so, of course, when we look at my Lord, the key there is the my. Let me just, oh, I don't have it on the screen. My Lord is significant. It's there in the text. There's a pronominal suffix on it. And so we have to ask the question, who would be the Lord of David? Again, only God would. And so that's Trinitarian speech between the Father and the Son. And so he says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. He's going to rule. 
And so he's going to be sitting at the right hand of the Father until it's time for him to take possession of the entire kingdom, of the universe. And so that's what's so significant in the book of Revelation. He goes from being seated at the right hand of the Father to standing. It's time. It's time for him to take possession of it, you see. So that's the transition we're seeing. Notice verse 2, it says, Yahweh will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Now let's stop there. Where is Zion? Well, Zion is Jerusalem, isn't it? So we have to tell those who say, well, when I die, I'm just going to be strumming a harp on a cloud, and that's really all there is. No. The rule of Messiah is from Zion, isn't it? That's on the earth. That's the the Jerusalem that we have on the earth. And in fact, the new Jerusalem will come down. All right, so now in verse 3, he says, Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth as to you as the dew. Now that's confusing, but the idea is that God's people will reign with Christ. So this is a kingdom that's just not for Christ, but it's also for his people. All right? Notice also in that text, it says your, you, there's this dew idea. It says your youth as to you as the dew. The dew is seen in Scripture as life-giving. Okay, so think about the Israelites that are in their exodus. Where does the manna come from? Well, they find it in the dew of the morning. So this idea of dew in the Scriptures is this idea of life-giving, eternal blessing from God. So in verse 4, and here's what I want you to focus on. It says, Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. So this is a forever promise. This is his promise to the Son. He says, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek, of course, is this figure in Genesis 14 who is both a king and a priest of Salem, which is Jerusalem. But the name Melchizedek comes from Melech, king, and Sadiq, righteousness. So he's the king of righteousness. So I want you to think about how fitting he is as a foreshadowing figure. Jesus is ultimately the king of righteousness. He is a priest who sacrifices himself And where will his reign be? In Jerusalem. And it will be forever. And so that's what we're seeing in the throne room. When Jesus stands forth, he's going to be making that happen. All of these things that are prophesied in the Old Testament are now coming true in the book of Revelation. Okay, now let's see the worship of the Lamb that this leads to then. Verses 8 through 10, it says, And he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, I'm sorry, when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign where? On the clouds, strumming a harp with nothing better to do? No, they'll reign upon the earth. Wow, very exciting. So think about that at the very end. They'll reign upon the earth. What's the prayer that Jesus gives in Matthew 6? The disciples say, teach us to pray. He says, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. It's being fulfilled here now, the answer to that prayer. Yeah, Rich. 
Now, is that just the thousand years we're talking about, yeah. or is that so? That's not for eternity. That's just it for the thousand be one years. Day it's both. It's, so it, do you think that heaven will be right here on earth then for all of eternity? When we get into the latter chapters of Revelation, what we see is the new heavens and the, and the new earth. They really become one. The new Jerusalem comes down. So we have a renovated earth. Does that make sense? Okay, so, so the, the, not just talking the thousand years here. This it, is beyond the thousand first, years. But it goes beyond that. Will it be kind of a new re- regeneration? In other words, the thousand years will be regenerated and then it'll be regenerated again after the thousand years? Yeah, so after the thousand years, then we have their new heavens and new earth. Remember, there's a rebellion after that a thousand years where Christ calls fire down on the enemies of God. Then after that, we have the new heavens and the new earth that are talked about in Second uh, Peter chapter 3. The heavens and the earth will be destroyed, the elements by fire. So what kind of people ought you to be, Peter asks? Well, that happens after the thousand years. So on the thousand years, we have a re-established kingdom in Israel over the entire earth. But after that thousand years, then we have uh, new heavens and new earth and the new Jerusalem come down. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's very exciting. Now, one thing I want to point out here in this text is John sees this bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And this is very beautiful. In the Old Testament, it was the prerogative of the high priest alone to give incense in the temple. Well, now the incense is being depicted as the prayers of the saints. And so it's another way of showing. Now, who's a saint, by the way? Well, anybody who's trusted upon Jesus Christ. You don't have to be voted on by the Catholic Church, okay? You don't have to be canonized. It's anybody who's believed in Jesus Christ, so now you have the prerogative of a priest. You're the priest. You, if you believe in Jesus Christ. And what's your ministry? Well, here it's the prayers. In fact, notice in the text, it it begs for this idea of us being priests. It says, you have made them to be a kingdom of priests a kingdom and priest to our God. Uh, think about this, 1 Peter 2.9. Peter says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. So let's just think about that for a moment. In the beginning of time, man was given authority over all of creation. And because of sin, they end up distorting it. They end up losing it. But what God does through Christ is he creates a new humanity, a new creation. And so you and I are part of this new creation that he's making in Christ Jesus, all made possible by what he's done, okay? In fact, that's what they're singing. They're singing, Christ is worthy. Notice here, worthy are you. Now, they give here a causal for. Why are they saying that he's worthy? Well, last time we saw it was because of his messianic credentials and what he did. Now the focus is on what he did. He says, they say, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That's why. That's why Jesus is worthy. Of course, being slain is his crucifixion. And this idea of purchase, notice in the underlying section, is the idea of redemption. Now, this term purchased is the verb agarazzo. You probably heard Bob mention this in our CIC radio. Agarazzo has to do with purchasing something from the agora. Now, the agora is the marketplace. And so it was as if you and I were slaves in the marketplace, and God is this magnificent owner who comes by and says, I want to purchase them. How much for them? And what's the price? The life of the Son, Jesus. So Jesus' death purchases us from slavery to sin, death, and hell. 
So no longer do we belong to the kingdom of darkness, but as it says in Colossians 1.13, because Christ purchases us, we've been transferred to the kingdom of the beloved Son. All of that idea is found here in redemption. So think about the first great redemption in history is really the Exodus. If you ask an Israelite, what's the great redemption in your history? They'll say the Exodus. And so there, God miraculously redeemed his people from Egypt, slavery, and brought them to the what? Promised land. Now you and I are being purchased, and where are we going? We're going to the promised land. We're going to reign upon the earth. It's a brand new exodus. And so you and I are also in the wilderness of this life. And what you and I are called to do is to persevere to the promised land. And that's what Bob was talking about in sanctification. We do that by believing the promises of God. Why did the Israelites fall in the wilderness? Because they thought, well, going back to Egypt is probably a little bit better. Right? How do you and I fall in the wilderness? We say, well, you know what? I think this is a little bit better than what we have to look forward to. I'm going to live for things here and now. Maybe my neighbor's wife, maybe that'll give me some excitement because I can't really believe that the promises of God are true. Maybe I'm just going to live my life to heap up fortune and fame for myself because I don't really know if those promises are true. I'm going to start engaging in this or that activity that I know is sinful, but after all, it's so pleasurable, and this is all there is. I don't really know if those promises are coming about. And so you see, our Christian life is a battle to believe. It's a battle that this reigning upon the earth will really come. And that's why it's been given to us. It's not just pie-in-the-sky thinking. This is John grabbing us like you would a football team in the huddle and saying, come on, guys, this is real. It really will, in fact, break forth. So we can live not for Egypt, for this coming kingdom. Yeah, Brian and Bob, I'm sorry. I like in the book of uh, the John MacArthur wrote Slave that he has the picture of in ancient times, the slaves, there was like a pecking order. Like if you were a slave of so-and-so, you you would be a higher up in the pecking order than a slave of this person. So sure. there, it's clear language to the people of that time then to be a slave to the Lord. There was no higher uh, calling than that. Exactly. Well said. Yes. No higher calling to be a slave of Yahweh. Excuse me. I wasn't able to teach Wednesday night, but I was going to look at this passage, Hebrews 4, 1 and 2. And it very much fits with what you're saying. It said, therefore, while the promise to enter his rest remains, let us fear that none of you should miss it. For we have had the good news just as they did, but the message they heard did not benefit them since they were not united with those who heard it in faith. For we who have believed enter the rest. Okay, so the analogy, I was, sometime I'll teach on Sabbath and we'll go into this, okay? You know, they they were fastidious about keeping Sabbath, but they were not entering God's rest because Jesus offered it, and they rejected him. That's right. All right. Anyhow, uh, the spies went to the you know, lesser thing than what we have, Canaan, yeah. but it was the promise that was given to Abraham. Right. 
and they came back and didn't believe and all but two did not believe the promise of God and so they died in the wilderness and if you made a good point if we just think this is all there is let's enjoy it now we can't believe some future promise we'll never enter into the rest because we're not believing the good news there is the word for gospel yes we're not believing the gospel exactly and if we don't believe the gospel we don't enter into rest no matter how many rules we have about sabbath keeping or not well said yeah amen thank you bob I, I love the book of Hebrews because the writer in Hebrews also makes the point that, look, remember the Israelites are going to the promised land, which is in Canaan. And one of his points that he makes is if Joshua had given them the rest that was to be complete, why does David in Psalm 95 promise a rest after that? Think about that. You know, Joshua brings the people in around 1300 BC. Well, some 300 years later, David is also talking about a rest. So in other words, the rest couldn't be complete in Canaan. And that's one of the grand points that the writer of Hebrews is making. Where does the ultimate rest found? It's found right here as we reign with Christ upon the earth. That's where our ultimate rest. And how do we have that? Why? By faith in Christ. It's messianic salvation. Yep. So thank you, Bob. Great point. Now, one thing, I want you to see the result of this work that Christ has done. It makes them sing this new song. So this is a new song that these angelic beings are singing What's very interesting is when you look in the book of Psalms, a new song is mentioned six times, and it's always praise for God's redemptive acts that are either current or have gone in the past, but they cause people to sing a new song. But what's interesting is some 300 years later, when you get to the time of Isaiah, all of a sudden there's a new song, and the new song now is not about singing what God has done, but it's about singing what God will do through Christ. And I want you to see that, that that's the new song in Isaiah, Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42 is all about the suffering servant. And so in Isaiah 42, 1, God says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. So let's stop there. The Messiah is the anointed one. What's he anointed one with? Is it just oil? No, he's anointed with the spirit uniquely. I have put my spirit upon him. Okay? So Jesus then sends the spirit out as we saw, right? When he leaves to be seated at the right hand of the Father. So the Messiah is the one who's anointed with the spirit. And notice the promise. It says he will bring forth justice to the nations. Now, is that happening now? Is there justice in the nations? No, there's not much of that at all. (laughs) Right? So we don't have that going on now. So that's still in the future. This has never been the case that there's been justice to the nations. Now, just eight verses later, listen to how the new song comes in. So the Messiah is going to bring this justice to the nations when he comes to reign. Isaiah 49, 9 through 10, he says, Behold, the former things I have come to, have come to pass, now I declare new things before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. Now, what are these new things that he's declaring? Well, the time that the Messiah will come and bring forth justice to the nations. All right. Now, what does that create then? Well, in verse 10, he says, Sing to Yahweh a new song. Sing to Yahweh a new song. Sing his praise from the end of the earth, you who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you islands and those who dwell on them. There is a day that's coming. There will be justice over the whole world. And all of the nations will sing this new song that the angels are warming up now in the book of Revelation that we see. 
the whole world will sing this new song because as great as God's redemptive acts were in history, they are absolutely going to pale in comparison as to when the Messiah comes and reigns over the entire universe. That creates the need for a new song. Brothers and sisters, I can't wait to sing this new song with all of you and the angels around the throne as we worship him. So again, in the book of Psalms, the new song is about what God has done and what he's doing. But when you get to Isaiah, it shifts, and now it's about what the Messiah will bring. And so we see that then unfold in the book of Revelation. The new song is being sung because Christ is reigning. Isn't that beautiful? Listen to what Thomas says. Robert Thomas says, quote, The deeper sense of this new song is that however great the glories of things in the past, those will be dim in comparison to the splendor of things to come. Now, when you get to Revelation chapter 14, remember you have the 144,000 Jews that are saved out of the tribulation? It says they sang a new song because they also see this kingdom coming. They know they don't have long to go. So the new song is about, again, this great and glorious reign that will one day come. Now, the living beings, remember that the living beings, those four living beings and those other angelic beings, the elders are the one who are singing the song. So I just want to focus on a few things. First of all, notice when they're singing the song and they say worthy, they're saying worthy is the lamb, aren't they? Jesus is the one who's worthy. Remember that back in chapter 4, these same angelic beings were singing worthy to the Father. Notice Revelation 4.11, worthy are you, O Lord and our God. Well, that's the Father on the throne. So in other words, they're singing the same worthiness to both the Father and the Son. They're singing it to the Father on the throne and also the Lamb. So why is that important? It shows us that Jesus is God. That's one of the proofs that Dana Birkinshaw gave to us uh, proving the divinity of Christ. He receives the same honor that God does. And so this is another place in Scripture where you see the divinity of Christ. And the more you look, it's all over the place. Christ receives the same worthy and honor that God does. Worthy are you, it says, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. So in Revelation 4.11, we saw that God was worthy to rule because he's the creator of all things. Jesus is worthy of rule because he's God. He's the creator as well. He is the Messiah, and he's the one who's redeemed us. They're both God. Now, also, I want you to see that he says, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. That's important to them, that pronoun. And the reason why that's important is it shows the distinction between the elders and humanity. So the 24 elders who are singing this song, they can't be human. They have to be angelic beings. Okay? In fact, I brought something. You can pass it around. This is Metzger, Bruce Metzger's textual, critical text commentary. It's a textual commentary on the Greek New Testament. And what you'll see, I'll just pass it around. People can look at it. And I'll start with you, Brian. You're going to see in here, there's a bunch of textual variants that are mentioned. And what it does is it helps us establish which text is the better reading. Okay, and so in that, as you look at it today... It has four letters, A, B, C, and D. And it's just commentary. So, for example, what we have here in Revelation 5.10, there's debate on them. If you have a King James Version, it will say you have made us. Well, how do you know the King James isn't right 
or the New King James, and it should say, you have made us. Because if that's true, well, then the elders are indeed human beings. But if them is correct, well, then there's a distinction between the elders and humanity. Well, Bruce Metzger, people like that, will show you why this is the better reading. Okay, so if you look at that book, there's a bunch of different verses that are listed, and there's debate on those verses, which is the best reading, which manuscript. So Bruce Metzger lists them, and he has A, B, C, and D. A means we're absolutely confident that we know which is the best reading. B is, well, we pretty much know. C is, well, we're, we're a little bit more tentative. And D, well, it's either this or that. <laughs> okay? And you can see that that helps us. But in this reading, we know for sure that it should be them. So the King James and the New King James, because they follow the Texas Receptus, those are poor manuscripts. In other words, they're only following like four manuscripts. The evidence for this is overwhelming. The manuscripts that the Texas Receptus follows are very new, like 1000 A.D., Okay, and yet we have a lot of evidence that dates well be- before that and many texts that say them. So it should be them. Right? So then we know that there's a distinction again between the elders who are obviously angelic beings and humanity. So humanity is being saved here. Now, the last thing he says, they shall reign upon the earth. You and I are going to reign upon the earth. And this is an important note, I think, when it comes to debates in eschatology over the millennial kingdom. Let me read to you a man who is an amillennialist. This man, his name is Louis Burkhoff. He wrote this in 1938. Louis Burkhoff said this. This is in his systematic theology. So he was a systematic theology professor, and he wrote a text back in 1938 where he says, basically, I don't really think it's warranted in Scripture to see a place where Israel becomes a nation again. Okay, so listen to what he says. He says, quote, The conversion of the fullness of Israel, both the Old and the New Testament, speak of a future conversion of in both Zechariah 12.10, and he goes on to list a bunch of passages. He says, This seems to connect this with the end of time. Premillennialists have exploited the scriptural teaching for their particular purpose. Well, let me stop there. That's because it's biblical. <laughs> okay. He says this, he goes on, he says, They maintain that there will be a national restoration and conversion of Israel, that the Jewish nation will be reestablished in the Holy Land, and that this will take place immediately preceding or during the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Now listen, he goes on to say, It is very doubtful, however, whether Scripture warrants the expectation that Israel will finally be reestablished as a nation and will as a nation turn to the Lord. Some Old Testament prophecies seem to predict this, but these should be read in light of the New Testament, unquote. He wrote that in 1938. Ten years later, Israel became a nation. Okay? I don't know. I I know. I don't know. I should have looked that up. That would be interesting. (laughs) You missed it. You have to amend your text. Yeah. I'll just leave you with this. I have a couple of uh, passages. We'll hit this next time. I have some texts that show you the reality of the millennial kingdom in the Old Testament. But I just want to leave with this, brothers and sisters, there's a place for us. There really is. And we're not just going to be reigning in the clouds, but the kingdom is literally going to come physically to Jerusalem. God is going to fulfill all of these promises. And it's very important that we see this idea of reigning upon the earth. The amillennialists want you to focus merely in this ethereal 
idea of reigning in heaven. But what we see over and over in the scriptures is that we're going to reign, yes, there, but also on the earth, just as predicted in both the Old and the New Testament. All right, so with that, I'll be quiet. And does anybody have any final comments or questions? Yeah, Dina. When you were talking about the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Son, yeah. uh, in church history there was a big dispute about whether the Holy Spirit just proceeded from the Father or from the Father and the Son. Yeah. And th those who thought that the Holy Spirit just proceeded from the Father, they, they point to John fourteen sixteen, where it says, I will pray the Father and he will give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Yeah. But you, you pointed out in this passage from Revelation that the Holy Spirit is proceeding from the Son too, as well. Exactly, that's right. So it's a, it's a good illustration of how you can't base your understanding of a subject on just one passage of Scripture. You have to, you have to look at all of the relevant passages. The that's yeah. right. Amen. Well said. Thank you, Dana. Yeah. Yeah, in John fifteen twenty six, Jesus also says, yep. I will send him the parakletos, mm. yeah, who proceeds from the Father. So we see it's both in that one verse. But that's another good one in John 14. Yes, amen. Thank you. Well, I tell you what, next time I'll hit some of these kingdom texts. We'll look at the millennial kingdom, and then we'll transition through the chapter 5, and I'll give you an introduction into the various views on the tribulation when we get into chapter 6. So let's just bow our heads in prayer. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you are the God who keeps all of his promises, that in Christ we have this great hope for a coming kingdom. We thank you, Lord, that these promises are true in him. We ask, Heavenly Father, to help us to believe these things, that we would forsake the sins that so easily entangle us now down in the wilderness, and we would live for these great promises that you have. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.